Let me pray for us. Jesus, there is no one like you. You hold every victory in the palm of your hands. There is nothing that our God cannot do. If the grave is empty, then so is our disappointment. If the grave is empty, then so is our fear. If the grave is empty, then so is our shame. We stand here today to celebrate the risen King, the conquering Savior, the one whose name is matchless, whose name is worthy, whose name is beautiful, whose name is mighty, whose name is Jesus. And we give him all the glory and all the honor and all the praise today. And all of God's people said, amen and amen and amen. You guys can go ahead and grab a seat. Well, I guess if this thing comes up short, he can field it and run it out. All right, here we go. 56-yarder. It's got, no, does not have the leg. And Chris Davis takes it in the back of the end zone. He'll run it out to the 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 45. There it goes, Davis. Oh, my God. Davis is going to run it all the way back. Auburn's going to win the football game. Auburn's going to win the football game. He ran the missed field goal back. He ran it back 109 yards. They're not going to keep him off the field tonight. Holy cow. Oh, my God. Auburn wins. Auburn has won the Iron Bowl. Auburn has won the Iron Bowl in the most unbelievable fashion you will ever see. I cannot believe it. 34 28. And we thought a miracle in Jordan Hare was amazing. Oh, my Lord in heaven. Chris Davis just read it. 109 yards. And Auburn is going to the championship game. Now, we're going to have to talk to that gentleman about taking the Lord's name in vain. But how many of you guys remember that moment? How many Auburn fans are in the house this morning? Where are my War Eagles at? Okay. Okay, I would ask about where my Alabama fans are, but we know they worship the devil. Okay, so. My wife went to Auburn her freshman year of college, and so I'll never forget watching that game. It was the 78th Iron Bowl, and number one ranked Alabama squared off against the Auburn Tigers, and they were within one second of winning the game within one second of securing victory. Now, if you're a sports fan, you know that this is the place of complete and utter helplessness. There is nothing that you can do to make a kicker miss a field goal. It doesn't matter how loud I yell at the TV screen. It doesn't matter how loud that stadium gets. There is nothing that you can do. All you can hope is for a miracle. And that miracle came when Alabama kicker Adam Griffith didn't have the strength to kick the football through the uprights and cornerback Chris Davis of the Auburn Tigers, Tigers grabbed the football in the end zone, ran 109 yards for the touchdown to win the game. Many sports writers have evaluated this play and say that because of the rivalry because, uh, between the two teams and because of the last second nature of this victory that it goes down as the greatest moment in the history of college sports. Well, the matchup that we have this morning is, a co- is one of cosmic proportions. It's death versus life. And I'm here to tell you today that the situation is much more grim than Auburn versus Alabama because death is undefeated. Death always wins. And 
It's not as if the clock has just hit zero. It's not as if it's just the fourth quarter. It's hit zero, and it's been there for days. There is no chance, no hope, unless a miracle happens. Have you ever been there before? Have you ever found yourself in defeat, disappointment, thinking that there was no way out? Have you ever closed the page on a story, put a period on a relationship, said, it's over? There's no hope. Death has won. The seven days leading up to Easter, we've been studying the seven statements of Jesus found in the book of John. And the statement that we look at today is this statement that Jesus makes, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, the backdrop to this statement is defeat. In a town called Bethany, a man by the name of Lazarus is sick. He is sick, and this family is the closest family to Jesus other than his natural family. And so Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, send word to Jesus, who's 20 miles away, some one day of a journey via a note. And they say, hey, Lazarus is sick. Come help. That's where we pick up the story today. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 11, verse 1, this is what it says. Watch the story unfold. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the three sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, I want for you to pay attention to this note. This note is crazy. This note is shocking. The length of this note is disturbing. The one whom you love is ill. Look at the contents of this note. I want for you to try to imagine, try to suppose that you are trying to convince Jesus to come and to save the life of a loved one. If so, you're, that, that would be a long note. It would have a lot of evidence, a lot of rationale, a lot of reasons why Jesus should hurry and scurry to come save your loved one, right? It would be full of points and poetic language. Now, if you were trying to save somebody else, like if you were trying to save your mother-in-law, the note might read, God, I know you're busy. We'll talk later. I'm kidding. I love you. She's in here today. I'll pay for that later. But if it was your brother or your mother, or your sister, the note would read, Jesus, please get here as quickly as you can. I need you to help. You would try to compel Jesus to come and save you. But what do Mary and Martha say? They say, the one who you love is sick. The one who you love is sick. And I need you to know on this Easter Sunday that the most motivating fact in the heart of God is not how much you love him, but how much he loves you. I don't know if you are like me at all, but I have this propensity, this tendency to try to convince God to act on my behalf based upon how much I love him. I try to remind him of all the things that I've done for him, the times that I've showed up for church, the times that I've read my Bible, the times that I've been a good person and said, God, will you love me? Will you move for me? Will you come and show up on my behalf because of my love for you, but not Mary and Martha? They do not try to convince God based upon their love for God, but based upon God's love for them. We need a church full of people who do not try to move God's heart 
because of our love for him, but who are so moved by God's love for us, who understand how deep and wide and vast it is, who understand that there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any less, and there is nothing that you can do to make God love you any more. It's the truth of the crucifixion. All of your sins were future sins when Jesus went to the cross, and he went anyways which means that his love for you is not based upon your action, but it is based upon his character. This is the story of Easter. John chapter 11, verse four says this, but when Jesus heard it, he said, the illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Now, every, every Christian thinks that they want to live a life that glorifies God until they're giving an illness for the glory of God. You see, we want to glorify God so long as it's going to be easy, but we don't know if we want to glorify God if, there's going to be difficulty. But I think one of the most important elements of the resurrection that you can take into your heart today is that the great work of God is not done in avoiding difficulty or in going around difficulty, but it's by driving a cross straight through difficulty. It is in your greatest difficulties that God is able to do his greatest works. You see, so often we want the promise of God, but we don't want the person of Jesus. We want the crown of heaven, but we don't want the cross. And we want resurrection power, but we don't realize that we got to die first. You got to get to the end of yourself. It's in a grave. Do you realize that if Lazarus doesn't die, Jesus never raised him from the dead? That if there is no cross, there is no resurrection? That if there is no test, there is no testimony? And that if there is no need for a miracle, you will never know my miracle working God. This is the story of Easter, what Easter should do is it should reframe everything in life for us. The resurrection should reframe everything. We should no longer look at difficulties as setbacks, but we should look, them, look at them as setups for comebacks, as opportunities for God to come through. So now because of the resurrection, I don't see the difficulties in my life as something that I'm gonna wallow in my sorrows about, but something that's gonna grow my faith and grow my expectation because it may be Friday, but Sunday's coming, amen? We serve a miracle working God. John chapter 11, verse 17, the story continues. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. When Jesus steps into the town, Lazarus has already been dead for four days. Four days. It's not as if there is a second left on the clock. It's not like Jesus can sub in in the fourth quarter. The field has been cleared. The game is over. This boy is buried. And it's in that moment that Jesus shows up. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but Christians have this tendency of saying some real cheesy stuff. And if you're new to our club, there are all these catchphrases that you got to figure out, that you got to learn, that you got to catch up on, like this one. God is good. And all the time. See, I told you. <laughs> There's just some weird stuff that we do, yo. 
Like one of them is this, like, my God is never late. He's always on time. I don't know. Sometimes I feel like he's late. (laughs) And I know this, he's definitely never early. He never like gives me some miracle money early. You know what I'm saying? He never pays off my mortgage early. You know what I'm saying? Like he never shows up early. (laughs) So I don't know. He might be, it might seem like he's late sometimes. You know how there are some like at people and then there's some around people. Like there's some people who are there at the time that you tell them to be there. And then there's some people who are there around the time that you tell them to be there. You know, I really learned this once I started to befriend and get into Latin American culture. This is where I learned about ish. Five-ish. Five-ish. Like, and my wife uses ish now. I'm like, hey, how long till we get ready to go? She goes, five-ish. And that could be five minutes-ish. That could be five hours-ish. That could be five days-ish. That could be five more times of me saying five more-ish. You see, they're at or they're around people. But, you know, once I got involved in Latin American culture, I, uh, I went to this Guatemalan birthday party. And um, they were like, hey, be there at 4 o'clock. And so, you know, me being a good Irishman got there at 4 o'clock, right? Like probably 3.58 because if you're not early, you're late. Can I get an amen? Okay, that's the way my mama raised me. And so, uh, so I get there early and I'm just sitting around waiting for this birthday party. 10 minutes go by, 15 minutes go by, 30 minutes go by. It's like me and one other white dude. And I'm like, should we leave? Should we leave? And he's like, no, trust me, wait, because when they get here, the party is getting started, okay? So they may have showed up late, but when they got there, that party went all night long, you know what I'm saying? And I'm here to tell you today that Jesus is a little bit like a Guatemalan birthday party. (laughs) That he might be late, but when he gets there, he is going all night long. There is no limit to what he will do. There is no telling the adventure that he will lead you on. There is no telling the excitement that he will bring. There is no telling the breakthrough that is possible. He might not show up when you want him to, but when he steps in, there is no limit to what my God can do. This is what happens with Jesus in this story. He gets there, he steps in, and the miracle starts to happen. But look at what Martha says. Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had only been here. Have you ever been there? Where you found yourself in a situation, God, if you had just been here, then maybe my mom wouldn't have died. If you had just been here, then maybe my wife wouldn't have lost her job. If you would have just been here, maybe my neighbor wouldn't have committed suicide. If you had just been here, maybe my son wouldn't have fallen into that addiction. If you would have just been here. And what happens to Martha is what happens to us is we get so focused on where Jesus wasn't that we miss where Jesus is, standing right in front of us, ready to do the impossible. Look at what Jesus says, verse 22, but even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You see, what's happening here is Mary Martha, she begins to believe that the resurrection is a future thing, that it's something that's going to happen in the future. But look at what Jesus says to her. John eleven twenty five. 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though yet he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. 
I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. You see, Martha believed that the resurrection was this event that was going to happen in the future. She said, I know that on the last day, at the end of time, when life is over, when I'm old and gray, when I've lived my days, that the resurrection will come. But I'm so disappointed because I'm never going to see my brother again. And what Jesus wants to do for Martha is the same thing that he wants to do for you. And it's that he wants to pull what you think is just some future hope into a present reality. He wants to show you that you may think that the resurrection is some future event, but that what the resurrection actually is, is a person whose name is Jesus. The resurrection is not just some idealistic happening someday. It's right here. It's right now. And it's for you and me. Because resurrection isn't just something that Jesus does. Resurrection is who Jesus is. It's in his nature. It's not like just a trick. It's not just an event. You see, whenever Jesus crosses path with death, life always wins. Life always wins. We see this all throughout the Bible. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus rolls up on a funeral possession in a town called Nain. And there's this widow. And so this widow is now getting ready to bury her son. And so death hasn't just won once. Death has won twice. Death has taken everything from this woman. But when Jesus steps into the story of this woman whose whole life has been marked by death, he intersects that funeral procession and it gets turned into a worship service because he raises that boy from the dead. We see it happen again in Luke chapter 8. Jesus is teaching when a guy by the name of Jairus comes to Jesus' feet and says, my daughter's sick. Jesus says, okay, show me, lead me, let's go to your daughter. And on the way there, he gets news that his daughter has died. She's no longer sick, she's died. And he thinks that the story is over, that Jesus will just part, that they will just go their separate ways. And Jesus says, no, we're not going our separate ways. We're gonna keep going even when it's difficult. We're gonna keep walking even when there's doubt. We're gonna keep going when everyone else thinks that it's over. We're gonna stay close to Jesus, walk next to Jesus, because there's no telling what he can do. And he walks into there and he says, little girl, get up, walk out, you rise today. Because Jesus is the God of resurrection life. And you may think today that your story is over. You may feel like you are dead in discouragement, dead in doubt, dead in defeat. But Jesus is the resurrection. And I want for you to know that there's no person and that there's no situation, that there's no dream, that there's no relationship, that there's no desire that he cannot raise from the dead. There is nothing that is in your life that you have put to rest that he cannot call to come out of the grave. John eleven thirty two. 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Now, if you've ever been to a funeral before, if you've ever been around when a family gets news of the death of a loved one, it's kind of this rhythmic domino effect scene. And it's just full of unbelievably agonizing emotion. There is mourning and there is crying and there is hugging and there's just, it's just, it's horrible, right? And everybody's hugging, they're trying to make sense and they're asking the tough questions like, why did this happen? Why did this have to happen to us? He went too young, it was too soon, it was too early. Wasn't supposed to happen like this. 
then over time things will start to settle down and people start to get their composure. And then another family member who hasn't arrived yet walks into the room. And if you've ever been there before, it's just as if that family member walking in the room causes you to feel that rush of emotions all over again. And everybody starts to cry and hug and sob and make sense of the situation. And that's what's happening right here. Martha had already encountered Jesus and said, where were you? But Mary had yet to see him. And so she falls at his feet and asks the same thing. Where were you if you had only been here? And in this middle, in the middle of her disappointment, Jesus asks her such an imperative question. Jesus says, where have you laid him? Where have you laid him? And I want to ask you today, where did you lay, lay them? Where did you leave them? Where did you put to rest that dream? Where did you bit prematurely bury that relationship? Where have you thrown the dirt on, something, on top of something that you thought was dead, defeated, gone, not coming back, no way, absolutely impossible? Where did you lay them? Where did you give up on that person? Where did you give up on that business? Where did you give up on that relationship? Where did you give up on that future? Where did you give up on that kid? Where have you laid them? Because Jesus is wanting to take you and walk with you into that person's situation. They said to Jesus, Lord, come and see. Now, come and see is such an important phrase in the Bible. This has been Jesus' invitation up to this point. Come and see. Come and see. So when John the Baptist's disciples learn about Jesus and they see that he is doing these crazy things, Jesus says, come and see. Philip tells Nathanael that there's this prophet from Nazareth that he has to meet. And Nathanael responds, can anything come from Nazareth? Philip says, come and see. A Samaritan woman has this interaction with Jesus at a well. And she goes back to her village and says, come and see a man who told me everything about my life. It's the invitation that Jesus uses for us to see life. And now Mary and Martha are using the same invitation for Jesus to come and see death. And I just want to invite you to invite Jesus to come and see today. I don't know your story. I don't know what you carried in here today. But what might happen? What could occur if in the deepest, in the darkest, in the most secretive and hidden, the most buried and forgotten about places of your life, you said, Jesus, just come and see. Come and see about my son. Come and see about this marriage. Come and see about this habit. Come see about this failure and just see if there's anything that you can do. I invite you to invite Jesus to come and see. I think it's important to remember that the last couple of weeks of Jesus' life are spent unbelievably human. That he eats with outcasts, that he rides a stolen donkey, that he washes dirty feet, and that he weeps. He sobs. Like uncontrollably he sobs. His heart breaks. It breaks for the fact that his friend is gone, but it also breaks because Mary and Martha lack belief. You know that, yes, God's heart is broken by the loss, but he is also broken when we lose belief. Our great work as followers of Jesus is to fight with everything inside of us that when the world tells us that he is bad, that he remains to be good. That when our situation seems to be dark, to remember that he is the light of the world. To remember that the truest thing about us is not our experience on this planet, but it is the reality that he has secured for us life everlasting in a place called heaven. Yeah. The focus is belief. 
verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and it was a cave, and it had a stone laid against it, and Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed that you would see the glory of God? Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Now, one important element for us all to understand in Christianity is that we have, we have a faith that is all about grace. That salvation is not by your own doing or your own merit or your own good works. There is nothing that you can do to earn God's love or to receive God's approval. There's nothing that you can do to get God's forgiveness. It is free grace. Salvation belongs to the Lord. We serve a miracle working God. We are not the ones who work the miracle. He is the one who saves us. We cannot save ourselves. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want for you to know that you came in to today in the kind of situation that is more devastating than you could ever imagine. You are lost at sea. You are sinking in your sin. There is no way for you to get back home. You can't be good enough. You can't earn it. You can't come to church enough. You can't clean your life up enough. You can't pray enough. You can't give us enough money. All you can do is trust in Jesus. And it is by his grace that you are saved. But once he saves you, he is willing to save you. But there are some stones that you're going to have to roll away too. And there's some grave clothes that you're going to have to come out of. Don't you know that today? You know, he says, roll away the stone. So, so they've got to roll away the stone. There's some active ingredient involved. And then he says, Lazarus, get up and come out. And says that Lazarus comes out and he comes out in grave clothes. Lazarus comes out looking like he's in the middle of a thriller video. Think about it now. His name is Jesus. Jesus Christ. He bled and died and rose just to give eternal life. Jesus. That was good, y'all. That was good. A little thriller on Easter Sunday. My dance moves weren't too great, but the lyrics were awesome. So there he is, Lazarus. He's in this grave and he's been awakened to life and Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. And I'm here to tell you today that the good news of the gospel is that you can be wrapped up in everything, in addiction and in anger and in rage. You can be wrapped up in secret sin. You can be wrapped up in more unforgiveness than you could ever imagine. You can do more wrong than you could ever possibly begin to articulate. You could be wrapped up in all of that and Jesus will invite you to come out he will invite you in and invite you out. But when he invites you in and invites you out, it's time for you to take the grave clothes off. And there's some of you who have been living set free by Jesus, but still enchained to grave clothes. Some of you guys who are still living lives of death, lives that are marked and informed and colored and that look like death. And today, the news of Easter is that you can take those grave clothes off. But you don't have to wear them anymore. You know how limited your life is in grave clothes? You cannot experience new resurrection life in your old clothes. 
When Jesus saves you, he also wants to change you. He doesn't just want to forgive you. He wants to make you new. He wants to get you out of those grave clothes. You're so limited in grave clothes. You can't move. You can't look. You can't see. You can't taste. You can't experience everything that God wants for you and everything that God has for you. If you say yes to becoming a new creation but still wear the old clothes. God wants you to come out of the grave clothes today. He wants for you to take them off. This resurrection Jesus is somebody who turns us into resurrection people. We are resurrection people. You know, one of the most painful things in Christianity right now is that there are people who say yes to Jesus with their lips, but no to Jesus with their lives. Who check yes on Facebook, but who check no every other day. Who raise their hand once, but who do not follow day in and day out who've got casual devotion, who think that Jesus just wants their acceptance. I'm here to tell you today that Jesus will give you life and life eternal, but he wants your life in exchange. And that what the church in America needs right now, some people who get serious about taking the grave clothes off, who get serious about rolling away some stones, because Jesus has more life than we could ever begin to comprehend that he wants to drop on us, that he wants to drop on our family and our neighbors and our cities and generations but it's time for us to stop playing games with Christianity. Now, this is the most important part of the sermon today. This is imperative. It is imperative that we do not reduce the resurrection to motivational rhetoric that just calls us to get up when we're down. The resurrection is the reality that for those of us who believe our last breath in this world is our first breath in eternity. The reality of the resurrection is that this is not a game. This is not cute. This is not a slogan. I am not a sports commentator today. I'm not just trying to cheer you on or pep you up or let you know that you can make it through life. I'm here to tell you that this is real stuff, that there was a real man who was named Jesus, who really died a cruel death on a Roman cross, whose body went into a grave, and on the third day, he got up out of the grave. That that is not allegory, it is history. It is history, it is history that is attested to by more than 500 witnesses in antiquity. 12 of them gave their life to prove this fact. I love what Charles Colson writes. Charles Colson says, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proves it to me. How? Because 12 men terrified, 12 men testified that they'd seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed this truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it were not true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. The resurrection of Jesus, Jesus being the resurrection in the life is not a religion. It is not a church. It is not a ritual. It is a reality. 2,000 years ago in the Middle East, an event occurred that permanently changed the world. I want for you to hear me saying this today. This is the most important moment of your life. 2,000 years ago, Jesus was beat down. Death had won. It was a blowout. It was lopsided victory. They spit on him. They mocked him. They hurled insults at him. 
They ripped out his beard. They smashed a crown of thorns into his head. They pierced his side. They punched him in the face. They ripped his back apart. They used instruments of torture on him. And he was beaten so badly that he couldn't even carry his own cross. Somebody else had to carry it for him. They nailed him to that cross with nine-inch nails. And his body hung there naked and exposed and bloody until he suffocated on his own blood. His disciples disappeared. The crowds went home. This once influential movement headed for the hills. And for three days, death celebrated. For three days, hell paraded. For three days, death was victorious. But on the third day, Jesus became too much to handle. And he got up out of that grave because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. This is the story of Easter. I really want for you to know who Jesus is. I want for you to know that he is the resurrection and the life and that there is life with Jesus and life without Jesus and life without Jesus is no life at all. That I know you've got a lot going on and I know your job is really important. I know you have to pay the bills. I know you have to raise kids. But I just want you to know that one day you're gonna breathe your last breath. And then in that moment, he is your only hope. And I want for you to know that, that that hope that is available for you in eternity is available for you right now here today. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus says this, this is eternal life, that they know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You can experience eternal life right now, right here, today, if you know Jesus. You know, there's an incredible story about Helen Keller. Helen Keller is a hero to so many, and if you know the story of Helen Keller, she was just a few months old when she contracted an illness that caused her to become blind and deaf. And it wasn't until the age of 10 when Helen Keller encountered Ann Sullivan, a teacher with a lot of creative methods for teaching, that she began to learn how to communicate. Ann Sullivan took Helen Keller's hand and she wrote on her hand the word water. And from that point moving forward, Helen Keller began to learn to speak and read and communicate. Helen Keller would go on to graduate from college, the first female deaf and blind person to do so. She won awards and authored books and will forever be talked about in history. She got later in life, her parents wanted to get her some religious studies and so they called a clergyman from Boston, Phillips Brooks, to come and teach Helen Keller about the Bible. Phillips Brooks recalls one day in his biography as he was teaching Helen Keller, Helen turning around to Mr. Brooks and saying, you know, I always knew about God before you showed me, only I didn't know his name. And I just wonder today if there's maybe some of you who have felt it in your chest that there's got to be more than this. There's got to be more than money. There's got to be more than sex. There's got to be more than status. There's got to be more than just a bigger house and a nicer car and another experience. And I just want you to know that that feeling that you're feeling in the pit of your chest, his name is Jesus. And maybe today, you know Jesus is the son of God, but do you know him as the bread of life? 
who when your soul is starving that he can meet all your needs. And you might know him as the bread of life, but do you know him as the light of the world who will step into your darkest situation and cause fear to go running? And you might know him as the light of the world, but do you know him as the door who gets you access into the presence of God that you feel like you've been shut out of your whole life because you weren't worthy and you weren't deserving and you were too dirty? And you might know him as the door, but do you know him as the way and the truth and the life? The only way that you can get back home to your father. And you might know him as the way and the truth and the life, but do you know him as the true vine, your only source for life, the one who can call you to, cause you to flourish into beauty that is unimaginable. And you might know him as the true vine, but do you know him as the resurrection and the life who does not just make bad people good, but who makes dead people come alive? Do you know him as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author of salvation, the first and the last, the one who was and is and who is to come? Do you know Jesus, the one who is worthy, the name above every name, and the name that at one day every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is Lord to the praise of glory of God? I want you to know him today. I want you to see him today, and I want you to know that there's so much more to him than meets the eye. As many of you know, we spent the last 21 days doing church, and a lot of you, what you've seen is you've just seen us gathering for 21 days. You've seen us taking 21 days to sing some songs and to hear some messages and to go on with our lives. That's what you've seen, but I want to show you that there's always more to God than meets the eye. Let me show you the story that's been going on underneath the surface. On day one, a woman who had been trapped in drug addiction and shame and guilt for decades stepped into the baptism waters and experienced freedom. On day two, a man who was living on the streets got invited to night church. He came and he heard the gospel. He raised his hand to follow Jesus for the very first time. On day three, a man came to night church who didn't have any food or a place to stay. And a couple who were part of our church, Elevate City, sacrificed, stepped into this gap and provided for this man food and shelter. On day four, on man night, Thomas Cheeseman preached his second sermon ever. But it was good enough to have three men get into the waters of baptism and leave behind their old lives. On day five, a girl came to night church for the first time and encountered Jesus like never before. That night, she chose to turn away from sin, and the next morning, she said she wants to get baptized. Come on. On day six, a couple spent their 22nd wedding anniversary at night church. Who does that? On day seven, 24 different people committed to praying every hour of the day for seven straight days to see God do a work in this city. On day eight, when asked to write a story of what Jesus had been doing in their heart during night church, a young woman opened up about being trapped in an abusive marriage for the very first time. She said she found freedom here and was met with love and grace and embrace when she thought she was going to be met with shame and guilt, which is what she'd anticipated. We're changing stories here. Day nine, a girl decided to cancel her dinner reservations for her birthday and brought her entire friend group to night church. On day 10, a woman who had been 
carrying the secret shame of having an abortion 25 years ago and not telling a soul came out of hiding and experienced the forgiveness of living in the light of the world on day 11 two young refugee girls from Clarkston who've experienced discipleship and family got into the waters of baptism and said I'm finally home on day 12 Bailey Cook preached her face off two young girls came out of hiding and gave their life to Jesus at ladies night day 13 after not attending church for over a year due to being hurt and wounded by a previous church these this couple showed up to elevate city and experienced healing and now calls this place their home on day 14 a woman who had been fighting with alcohol for over 20 years knew it was time to come out of hiding she went to AA and is on the road to recovery for the very first time. On day 15, a man who had previously attended night church got out of prison that day. And with nothing but a bathrobe on his back, showed up at night church and said, I have nowhere else to go. But I came here because I knew you guys would take care of me. Come on. On day 16, a woman staying at a hotel, at this hotel, who was just visiting from out of town, found out about night church. She attended, raised her hand to follow Jesus for the first time, and is now a part of Elevate City family through church online. This family's growing, people. On day 17, a young woman confessed to being trapped in a duplicitous lifestyle of sex and drugs and partying. She made the decision to leave that behind and chase hard after Jesus for the very first time. On day 18, on night one of night church, I was asked to write down the name of one person that I wanted to see God do a work in throughout the next 21 days. So I, a mother, wrote down my son's name. We hadn't spoken in six months. But on day 18, he texted his mom saying, life is too short and it's time to reconcile this relationship. Come on. On day 19, a couple that was going to get divorced decided not to. And on day 20, at our Good Friday service, four people raised their hands to surrender their lives to Jesus, their good shepherd. And on day 21, that man that we met on a street on day two, who was living on the streets, came to night church, gave his life to Jesus, got a job for the very first time. I serve a miracle working God who causes life to come out of death, who causes beauty to come out of ashes. He makes all things new. Even when you can't see it, he's working in the darkest night. He is the light of the world. Jesus, we praise you. We give you all glory and all honor and all praise. We show up here on this day to celebrate the one name that is above every name, the name that has conquered the grave. But I know that there are some people in the crowd today who have not yet been made new. There are some people whose whole lives have been marked by death. They feel like they're Lazarus. They're trapped in a grave. A stone is in front of them. They're covered in grave clothes. And I just wonder if you might want to call them out of death and into life today. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you want to experience life and life eternal, I'm just gonna invite you to pray this prayer after me. Jesus, I need you. Jesus, I surrender to you. Jesus, I need you to raise me to life today. 
I believe that you're God. I believe that I've sinned, but I believe you canceled my sin on the cross. I believe in your resurrection and I want resurrection life today. If you prayed that prayer, this moment is the most important moment of your entire life. I wanna give you an opportunity to respond, to come out of that grave the way that Lazarus did. And so with every head bowed and every eye closed, on count of three, I'm gonna invite you to raise your hand as a sign of surrender, saying, I'm coming out of the grave. I want life today. I want Jesus today. I want a miracle working God in my corner today. That's you. One, two, three, hands in the air, all across the room. Praise God, let's celebrate that Jesus is making people new. Jesus, we love you. You are the one who is worthy. You are the one who is mighty and you are the one who is deserving of all praise. We thank you for your life. We thank you for your death and we praise you for your resurrection. And God, I know that these stories that we've read today are only scratching the surface that we will spend all of eternity seeing the effects of our faithfulness and our devotion to you. And that one day we'll tell stories that hallelujah, Jesus raised him to life. And hallelujah, he raised that marriage. And hallelujah, he conquered that addiction. And hallelujah, he makes all things new. Jesus, we thank you that what we're experiencing today is just a foretaste of forever. We love you. You are worthy, you are beautiful. We pray all of this in your matchless name and all God's people said, amen.